Yesterday, we talked about the call bit of the title of this camp. Today, we're talking about the life bit of the title of this camp. Called to a life of... We're going to think a bit more about that. Let's ask for God's help to do it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the great, in, the great time we've had growing together this weekend. Thank you for feeding us with your word. Thank you for feeding us with good food and for the great fellowship it's been to be here together. Father, please teach us now from your word again. Please change us by your word and spirit so that we might honour Jesus as he deserves. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you know what it's like when you're at a party, you're meeting new people and you've never met them before. And the first question is always, what do you do for a job? You know the drill. Wouldn't it be great at that point to be able to say something seriously impressive? You know, I'm a freelance fashion designer. What about you? Or wouldn't it be great to say something heroic? I, I'm a professional athlete. What do you do? Or perhaps something that sounds really intelligent. I'm a nuclear physicist. What do you do? You know the drill. What do I get to say? I'm a Christian minister. Mm, not a lot of kudos there. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not fishing for applause, but thank you. It's funny when I'm out with my wife, Jenny, and we meet new people and, um, you know, they ask, what do you do, Carl and Jenny? And I let, usually let Jen go first. And she says, she's very humble. She says, oh, I just work in medicine a couple of days a week. Very humble. And the response is, oh, that's wonderful. And what about you, Carl? Oh, I'm a Christian minister. Oh, I'm sure that's very nice as well. <laughs> Awkward silence. It's always an interesting conversation because Jenny and I are at opposite ends of the job respectability scale. The scale that identifies you and values you based on the perceived respectability of your employment. You know the scale. You've played the game. You know where you fit on the scale. It's nice feeling respectable, isn't it? It is nice feeling respectable. It's nice when you can identify yourself through a job that gives you instant value. You know, I can tell when I'm feeling less secure in social situations by the way I play the game. I, if I'm feeling super secure, I can put my job out there in the most shameful terms imaginable. And what do you do, Carl? I teach the Bible to university students so they can know why Jesus is the most important person in the world. That's when I'm feeling confident. But when I'm feeling a little bit less secure, a bit more intimidated perhaps by my conversation partner, I can make my job sound a little bit more impressive. I'm the Anglican chaplain to the University of New South Wales. A little bit more impressive. And I know when I'm feeling seriously intimidated because I reach for the absolute sellout. And what do you do, Carl? I work at the University of New South Wales. <laughs> if you have ever struggled with this issue, then I have a weird little verse of encouragement for you today. In one small verse at the end of chapter 6 in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, God speaks five weirdly comforting little words. You are not your own. Point one, a comforting little verse. At first glance, these five words might not sound overly comforting. Uh, we've been raised in a culture that treats 
individuality and autonomy as sacred rights, making your own decisions, having autonomy over your own life, they are strong values in our society. So it may feel confronting to hear that you are not your own. Because, well, when you are not your own, you are dependent upon the actions of someone else. And in a world where sin has corrupted everybody, that might feel like a dangerous place to be. But if you can belong to someone who is absolutely committed to your welfare, then belonging holds great promise of great comfort. If you are not your own, then it's not all on you. Someone else is willing to accept responsibility for your life and your well-being. If you could belong to someone who has shown genuine commitment to your welfare, then belonging would be a place of refuge and protection. So has Jesus shown any kind of commitment to your welfare? Is it safe to give your life to Jesus? Or will he just take advantage of you like so many others would. You can find the answers to these questions by looking at his character and his track record. And both those things are displayed perfectly. They both come together perfectly at the cross. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. This is redemption language. It's about a price being paid to purchase back something or someone that has been lost to another owner. Redemption is what you do when you have foolishly pawned your rings down at Cash Cavertis. I know you do it often, I'm sure. And you suddenly get a little bit of money and you have the money to buy your rings back. So you go down to Cash Converters, you go, you pay the price so that your rings are no longer owned by cash converters. They are now redeemed and they are back in your hands, probably literally. At the cross of Jesus, that's what Jesus did. He gave his life, he paid his life to buy your life back. And that is where we start to see the commitment of the one to whom we can belong. The Apostle Paul speaks about the cross as the great example of humility, love and service. On the screen are those magic verses from Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Entrusting your life to Jesus is the smartest move you will ever make because he has already demonstrated his absolute commitment to your well-being. And that is why Christ's commitment to you is the perfect place to find your true identity. 
This is relational identity, not performance identity. We're at point two. Relational identity, not performance identity. Now, what do I mean by these two things? Relational identity, performance identity. Perhaps the best way to illustrate the difference is a fascinating little event in the life of Jesus' disciples. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke 17 for a moment? Luke 17, it'd be great if you had your Bibles open. Luke 17, sorry, Luke 10. It's Luke 10, verse 17. Don't go to Luke 17, whatever you do. Go to Luke 10. Luke 10 from verse 17. And, and we, what we have here, we're breaking into the story. Jesus uh, has sent out his 72 disciples on a mission to Israel to heal the sick, to announce the kingdom of God has come near. And the disciples return and it's been a raging success. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. Where's verse 17 gone? There you are. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Even the demons submit to us in your name. Wow. Can you imagine having that kind of power? What a trip. What a power trip. Jesus responds and says that kind of power, he he describes it as Satan falling like lightning. Now here, I don't think Jesus is speaking about a prehistory fall of Satan. I think he's commenting on What actually just happened on this mission? See, the arrival of Jesus in the world has brought about the downfall of Satan. It will be completed at the cross, but its effects have already started. I think that's what Jesus is speaking about. And can you imagine how the the disciples must have felt with that kind of power, being involved with that kind of power? I had a little bit of a power trip of my own when I was a young ministry trainee about 25 years ago. One long weekend, Jenny and I went on a trip to Manly and we still don't know why, but as the captain walked through the ferry, he stopped to talk to us very kindly. And then, even more kindly, he invited us up to where he was driving the ferry from to have a look around. And he started kind of giving us a bit of a tour and showing us all the stuff, the sonar, the radar, the, the engine. It was quite amazing. Um, As he was showing us around, um, his assistant was driving the ferry out of Circular Quay on the way to Manly. Now, um, I I just sort of wandered over to the assistant and I said, how hard is it to drive this thing? And he said, it's actually really easy. You could do it. And then you won't believe this because this wouldn't happen now. He said, do you want to have a go? Unbelievable. Now, this is the size of the Manly Ferry, okay? This is, this is what we're talking about. This is a big ship. It's got 500 passengers downstairs that had no idea that their massive ferry had just been handed over to, the, to a lunatic to drive. <laughs> and as a vastly experienced ferry driver, let me tell you, this is what the harbour looks like when you're driving a ferry. Next slide. That is what the harbour looks like. And you are driving a ferry. And uh, who do you think has to get out of the way? It's not the big guy with 500 people under him, is it? 
those little puny sailboats, they better get out of my way because I've got the power in this relationship now. You'll be pleased to know that this next thing did not happen on my watch. But maybe I was not the only lunatic who got to drive the ferry, right? <laughs> Can you imagine the power kick that the disciples felt when even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name? It would be hard not to start building your identity on that kind of powerful performance, wouldn't it? That's who I am. I'm, I'm the guy who can drive out even demons in Jesus' name. But look at what Jesus says again in verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The real reason for rejoicing is not your performance ability, even to drive out Satan and his evil forces. The real cause for rejoicing is the relational privilege of having your name written in heaven with God. Your name written in heaven. It means you are known in the most important place. It means you belong to that place and in relationship with those who own that place. What an incredible privilege. A privilege that you can't possibly build for yourself. You can't write your own name there. You can only receive this beautiful privilege as a relational privilege in relationship because God has graciously given it to you. If you've been saved by Jesus, you do not need to find your calling or your identity. The most precious of all callings, the most precious of all identities has already been given to you by God. And perhaps the best thing about this special privilege, because it's not achieved by human performance, then it is available to all kinds of people who don't normally win in the cutthroat, high-pressure world of human performance. People like the unborn child whose life is taken away before he or she ever gets the chance to draw breath. If you've ever worried about whether a child who dies in infancy or even in utero can be saved by God, then I hope this theology gives you great comfort. The unborn child can be saved in exactly the same way that you are saved through the gracious choosing of God, by the precious blood of Christ, God can call the unborn child just as powerfully as he calls you or me. What about the person who is profoundly disabled and perhaps never able to express any trust in the Lord Jesus? Can God save someone like that who is not even capable to choose for themselves to repent and believe in Jesus? Absolutely God can save them. Their salvation, just like ours, does not depend on their ability to save themselves. Their salvation, like our salvation, depends on the sovereign choice of God and the precious blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And the same logic helps you and me in our own struggles with sin and identity. Can I still be saved if I mess up big time? 
Can I still be saved if I've done something that I know God didn't want me to do? Can I still be saved if I have unhelpful sexual desires? Can I still be saved if I struggle with gender feelings that are different to my birth sex? Absolutely. Absolutely. None of those struggles have to disqualify you from God's salvation because salvation depends on the sovereign choice of God before the creation of the world and the blood of Jesus shed at the cross 2,000 years ago and the beautiful call of God in the gospel. Are you feeling the beautiful security that comes with this, that being called by the gospel of grace gives to God's people? Are you feeling that beautiful security? Our salvation depends on God and everything he has done for us. And that means believers in Jesus are in the beautiful situation of absolute security and grace-filled freedom. But couldn't freedom like that be abused? We're at point three, glorify God in your body. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Come over to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the passage that was read by faith just a moment ago so well. 1 Corinthians 6, and have a look at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You are radically free in Christ to delight in the gifts that God has given you. But as someone who has been redeemed by the costly sacrifice of Jesus, you might choose voluntarily to limit your freedom for the sake of glorifying the one who redeemed you. Believers in Jesus can choose to self-impose God-honouring limits on their freedom, on their behaviour, because we know there is a greater purpose in life than short-term happiness or instant gratification. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it in verses 13 and 14. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Even the pleasures of good food and eating need to be now understood in the light of coming judgment because the resurrection age has begun. Because God has raised the Lord Jesus to reign forever in eternal glory, and because he will raise every one of those who are united with Jesus by faith, even the pleasure that this world holds most sacred, sex, even sex is no longer the all-encompassing priority in the life of the Christian. And so there might be times in your life when, for the sake of honouring your Redeemer, you will willingly deny yourself some pleasure, some intimacy, something or someone really desirable. Believers in Jesus live sacrificially like this because we are not our own. 
The Apostle Paul talks about one such situation in verses 15 to 17. 15 to 17. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Your relationship with Jesus means that there are now some sexual choices that are inappropriate for you. That is because God has created sex to bond a husband and a wife together for lifelong intimacy. Sex is a beautiful thing in the Christian life when used for the purpose that God created it. But sex is a disaster when it is used and abused for cheap instant gratification. Whether you want to call it the hookup culture, friends with benefits, or pornography, it all inevitably involves the trivialization and the cheapening of sex. If you've been called to belong to Jesus, let that belonging limit your sexual freedom to a sexuality that glorifies God with your body. And as you do that, you will protect yourself from the mess that our world has made of sex. Now, some of us will be struggling in this area right now. And I want you to make sure you hear that forgiveness is available through the Lord Jesus. I'm not raising this to make you feel guilty. But I do want to encourage you to flee. Flee now. Flee from sexual immorality. And that fleeing will not only protect you, well, it'll protect you from so many things. Have a look at verse 18 for a moment. Verse 18. Where's verse 18 gone? There you are. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, I'm sorry, I've only got one question for you in this talk. A bit, you know, it's a bargain maybe, or uh, no, I've, I've ripped you off maybe. Uh, there's only one question, but I've made up for it because it's a really tough question, okay? There's a question on the screen. How is sexual immorality a sin against your own body? Wow, tough one. Um, you've got 30 seconds. Enjoy. Okay, let's have a think about this together. Tough question. So if you're not really sure, perfectly okay. The context of these verses helps us to see that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body because of the one flesh union that it creates. It's unusual, isn't it? No other sin will unite your body with another sinner like sexual immorality does. Sexual immorality even unites your body in a one flesh union with someone that you should not be united with. You are not your own. You were bought at a great price. If you've already been united with Jesus by faith, then what you do now with your body is unbreakably connected to the Lordship of Jesus. 
That's what Paul goes on to say in verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are so closely united to Jesus that you are a member of his body and a temple for his very spirit. This beautiful relationship that you enjoy with your saviour by his spirit is so precious that it takes priority over everything else you might do with your body and all of your other relationships. And so what we find here is that true humanity is not measured by limitless freedom to do whatever you want. Just like true humanity is not measured by success or the ability to perform better than others. True humanity is something that only God gives and only God can truly define. So let's finish this talk by talking a little bit more about this true humanity. We're at point four, true humanity. In a world where value is measured by performance and ability, the real losers are not people like you. Because you have been blessed by God with a well-functioning brain and pretty good skills that mean you will generally rank among the winners in the success game. But when we play the game of measuring identity and value by performance, the biggest losers will always be the most vulnerable people in our society. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. Bethany Harris is 25 years old. When Bethany was born, her parents had all the usual hopes and dreams that parents have for their children. But as she grew, very shortly, they began to see that she was not developing at the same rate that all the other children her age were developing. They began to have tests done and they received the devastating news that Bethany has a very rare chromosome disorder called Angelman's syndrome. There are only a few dozen people in Australia with this condition, only perhaps thousands in the whole world. The condition means Bethany can't really speak or learn. She never had the privilege to attend school, let alone think about university. If you play the success game and identify Bethany's value according to her functional ability, you would come out looking very capable and valuable and she would come out looking very incapable and perhaps unvaluable. But the gospel offers a whole new way of valuing people. The gospel gives us a much more beautiful worldview where identity and human value is not built by individual performance, but received as a gift from God. And that beautiful gospel worldview honours human lives that the world tends to dishonour. That beautiful gospel worldview produces beautiful Christian ethical positions on things like abortion, euthanasia, disability care, palliative care, and many others. 
Now, I hope today that you've seen just a glimpse of how ugly the success game can be. And if you are truly offended by the evil way that our world measures value, then I would challenge you to do something about it. Of course, stop playing the game yourself first and then get comfortable with losing at the game. That's a great start. But if you really want to challenge the whole system, then only the gospel does that. Only the gospel provides a truly alternative worldview where value and identity are not defined by functioning. Only the gospel changes lives so that people can have a secure value in Christ. The gospel is the game changer. And that's why I want to encourage you to think about committing more of your life to sharing the gospel. It's the game changer. Do you know, Bethany led someone to the Lord a few years ago. Bethany has full-time carers who are paid by the government to be with her and to take her out on outings. And on one of these outings, well, each week, one of these outings is they go to church. Guess what happened when Bethany's non-Christian carer went to church each week with Bethany? Bethany's carer heard the gospel. And God, in his kindness, worked by his powerful word and spirit and called that carer to faith in Jesus. That carer is now a follower of Jesus and a member of that church in her own right. God used Bethany powerfully in his gospel mission. And you know, I think God might just be able to use you too. But you do have one disadvantage that Bethany does not have. What is this handicap that you probably have to overcome? You might just be a little bit too successful. Let's pray. Our Father God, please forgive us for the way that we have wrongly valued people. And please teach us to share your values. Amen.